Okay, good morning to one and all. Okay, scripture reading this morning is taken from Titus chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 4. And I shall read to you. Titus chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages begin, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Saviour. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Let us seek the Lord's blessing. Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, thank You, Lord, once again for giving us a day of worship and of rest. Thank You, Father, for giving us this means of grace whereby once again we can come even before Your presence not to praise You, not to seek You in prayer. And now even to listen to the preaching of your word. Again, now we command, uh, commit this, our learning to your hands, that you will be pleased to grant us uh, not only open, receptive hearts and mind, but also a heart that is, will be true and tender to your word, that we will receive your word in faith and in humility. Pray for the preacher, that you will be pleased to use him as your mouthpiece, as your instrument, Lord, to bring your word to your people. May you be pleased to command your blessing from on high in our learning. May the Holy Spirit guide and lead us into your truths and burn it on our hearts that it may also bring forth much fruit for your glory. Help us, Lord, for we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are beginning a new series on the letter of Paul to Titus this Sunday. The letter was most probably written by Paul during his first and second imprisonment in Rome in the early 60s AD. Now, along with 1st and 2nd Timothy, these three epistles are known as the pastoral epistles. And of course, Paul had more things to instruct Timothy and Titus and the church beside pastoral matters. The recipient of the letter was Titus. He served as a pastor in Crete, an island in the Mediterranean Sea. Now Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, has this to say about the letter of Titus, and I quote, This is a short epistle, but it contains such an example of Christian doctrine and is composed in such a masterly manner that it contains all that is needful for Christian knowledge and life. And interestingly, this is often a neglected letter. I mean, in my life as a Christian, I, yes, they were always preached from certain portion of the epistle, but I never, never have a chance to sit under the preaching or through the entire letter of Titus. 
Now the occasion of the letter can be found in Titus chapter 1 verse 5. And I shall read to you. That is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders on every town as I directed you. In short, Paul wrote to Titus and the church on the nuts and bolts of the church ministry. That is on how to do church, how you run your ministry in the church, and consequently how you run your life as a Christian in the church. Now today in the church, we find a lot of people, even good Christian people, who are doing church according to worldly standards instead of the biblical way. They will do church by using the management practice and marketing strategy of successful corporations. They will tell you they would love to have a visionary CEO of Microsoft to be your pastor. They would love to have the management style of the Google for the church. And they would like to tell you that they are using the marketing strategy and the packaging strategy of McDonald's in their church. These are all very successful corporations and each of them have things, yes, common grace and common wisdom that we wish we can use, especially on how to package your church to the world. But is this the right thing to do for us as Christians? And I've read an article in a very prominent Christian magazine that reached millions in the world. And this professor of church growth even advocate that we must, if we want, if we want to plant a church, be sure to plant your church next to 7-Eleven. Because 7-Eleven has the most traffic. They have done all the marketing research in town and they know where to cite their outlet where there's enjoy the most traffic, the most prominent place. And it's right, you should do that if you are doing a plan, new church plan. We should plan our church next to 7-Eleven. But of course, that also commands the most uh, highest rent in town. Again, is this the way to do church? They will do church by using and also taking the cue from the pop culture. What the pop culture wants, the pop culture leads the way of the worship style of the church, in short. Worldly practices and principles are preferred in many cases because they can bring in the crowds. They can fill your church And they seemingly produce results. People are coming to church. People are transferring their membership to your church. People are confessing Christ in baptism. 
and but godly practices and principles are out because it is hard and hard work in kingdom building. One soul at a time. Imagine that. Imagine a pastor come to you and say, I'm going to pastor your church and we're going to bring one soul at a time. Many of us will be stretching our head. One soul at a time. It takes how long to bring one soul to Christ? And you are saying one soul at a time or one family at a time? But God helping, we shall learn and we shall relearn for some of us and we shall come face to face with the biblical principles and practice of church ministry as we glean from the letter of Paul to Titus in the weeks to come. And now to begin with, the first principle of church ministry is servanthood. And there's no way to run from that. The word ministry or minister stems from the word service. Waiter, in short. We are all waiters, waiting on one another, serving one another, washing one another's feet. Our Lord Himself said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is the first principle of church ministry or your own personal ministry. There is servanthood. And it is an extremely unpopular item, ah, topic to speak of today. But one person changed my mind about servanthood. And he wrote a book called Slave. The author is none other than John MacArthur. He preached through a series of sermons on servanthood based on the salutation of Paul's letter. And we have one church today. Paul, when Paul wrote to a church, he often introduced himself as, yes, apostle, but many a times he also introduced himself as a servant of Christ. And let us start by looking at Paul's opening salutation in verse 1a this morning. Again, there are two things that Paul says about himself. First of all, he says that he was a servant. Now we know Paul is the human author and he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit inspired him to choose a word, a very strong word there for servant. The Greek word is doulos. It's a nice sounding name, right? Doulos. Ships are named after it. Even cafe are named after it. But the word should be more accurately be translated as born slave. It's not just a servant per se, not a caregiver that we employ to look after our loved ones at home in our modern day. A born slave is a, a world difference from our modern servants 
or domestic helps. Basically, as a bond servant, you lose your freedom. Even your freedom to die or to live. When the master says you die, you die. The master says you live, you live. You have no choice. And yes, majority of the population in, in the Roman times, they were slaves, born slaves. That doesn't make it a good thing to be a born slave. A highly educated man can be a born slave. A gladiator can be a born slave. But life is extremely unpleasant if you are a born slave. And the ancient world, as well as the modern world, hates the concept of slavery, don't we? And for a Jewish mind, it's worse. When I was in the Babylon tour, we were brought to different cities, ruined cities, and we were brought to one that is Unlike other ruined cities, the walls are darkened in colour, charred, burned. Marks are all left on the walls, on the ruins. And I ask, why is it different from the rest that we have visited? I mean, they all, once you have been to one, you have been to all. They all look the same, same ruins. But this look different. And the tour guide told us, during the war in AD 70, well, that was 2,000 years ago, the Jewish population of this town refused to submit to the Roman army and they choose to die rather than to be enslaved. So the whole city was massacred, burned. And then we are brought, of course, earlier on we are brought to another fortress in the wilderness called Masada. The Roman soldiers were storming the fortress up in the highlands and they built a causeway up to reach to the top of the fortress. Again, the soldiers in their fortress, they choose to commit mass suicide than to submit to the Roman soldiers and to be enslaved by them. It is how much the Jews hate to be enslaved by another race, by another nation. But here, Paul uses the word servant or born slave on himself. Paul throws the idea out of the window and says, look, I'm proud of and am glad to be considered as a born slave of Christ. Paul knows in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 19 to verse 20, we read that he, he's, he is aware and he wants us to be aware that we are no longer our own. We are bought with a price. We have been ransomed by Christ and we belong to God, belongs to Christ. And like other earthly masters, Christ is good all the time. He's infinitely gracious, infinitely loving, infinitely caring and all other earthly masters combined. And the Christian born slave means that he has been chosen to serve God and that he is God's property. 
And one of the benefits of being a Christian-born slave is that we are owned by God and God has the responsibility to take care of us and to provide for us. Unlike other earthly masters, they will let their slave go hungry. In fact, they will let their slave find food for themselves. And you all may not know, we enjoy our fried chicken very much, right? Chicken wings, chicken drumsticks. See, in colonial times, America, they do not eat chicken wings or chicken drumsticks. They eat chicken filet. The masters will eat a chicken filet. What happens to all the other parts? And how to make it nice? Your chicken wings doesn't taste nice. Your chicken drumsticks, so-so. So they put in a lot of salt, season with salt, put in flour, and the slave cooked them for themselves a, not Kentucky fried chicken meal, but a fried chicken meal. That is the origin of our fried chicken meal. So tasty. But the slave had to fend for themselves. They had to raise chickens to feed themselves. But not with our heavenly master, God. It is not unrighteous, nor unkind. He has taken upon himself the responsibility to not only take care of us, but to shield us from all danger, to protect us. Not only to provide a roof over our top, but to bless us with all blessings in heavenly places. This is our master. And sometimes when I'm facing a difficulty, or hardship. I should not say hardship. I never face hardship in life, sorry. I should say I should, when I face a trial of faith in life, I will often rest in the thought that I belong to God and I'm God's property. So that I do not need to be afraid. I do not fear. Who do I fear? Oh, why, why do I need to fear when I belong to God and I'm God's property? It is a concept of great humility. And from the time of Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, he viewed himself as a born slave of Christ. And of course, Another thing about being a Christian-born slave is you have no will of your own. Your whole life is doing the will of your master. That is God. You will ask, God, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? What's the task for the day? How do you want me to spend my time? You see, you belong to God. And you need to use your time, your talent, your gift, and even your treasure to serve your master. No doubt about it. Remember, the Bible says you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. My question to you is, 
Two questions, actually. Do you see yourself as a born slave of Christ, as Paul sees himself? Of course, the second question that follows, have you been using your gifts and your talents and your treasures to serve the Master? Instead of serving your own agenda. Now, the second title is that Paul is an apostle of Christ. So he's writing with his apostolic authority. Now, I do not believe that there are apostles today that have apostolic authority and to change the scriptures to make rules or to tell people how to live their lives. And beware of anybody that comes and says, I'm an apostle, I'm the Lord's anointed, and you must do what I tell you to do. The authority lies in the apostle scripture now. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So that's where the authority lies in their teaching as inscripturated for us in the New Testament. The closest thing we would have to an apostle today would be an ambassador, a representative. And truly as Christians, we all represent Christ to the world. We are God's ambassadors. And, and we are to represent Christ to this wicked, sinful world. Now we have looked at a brief definition of what a servant or servanthood is. Now we will consider what are the purposes. Why are we the purpose of servanthood? What, why are we here for? What are we here for as servants of the Lord? We can read that in, from verses 1b to verse 3. Why are we called to be a servant and an ambassador of Christ? And we see Paul's outline at least five purposes from the text that we have today. As I mentioned to you from verse 1b to verse 3. Now, the first purpose is for evangelism. Notice it in verse 1b. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. It is to bring those whom God has chosen to faith. See, God elects. And we evangelize. God who ordains the salvation of His people also ordains the means to accomplish it. That is true evangelism. The born slaves of Christ, which is you and me, His church, is to preach the gospel to all the nations. And how do people get saved? The Bible says in Romans 10, Chapter 10, uh, uh, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, 
and hearing through the word of God. You may not have noticed it, but the statement, the word of God, refers to the preaching of the gospel in its immediate context. Go home and check for yourself the context of Romans 10, and you will see what I mean. The word of God here refers to the gospel. And I'm convinced, and I hope you are convinced too, that there is no substitute that the church cannot and the church must never ever give up the preaching of the gospel. If the church gives up the preaching of the gospel, then we are no longer the church and we are no longer doing what we have been commissioned to do by Christ. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And sadly, we can do everything except to preach the gospel. We have committee meetings. We have family conversations. We have potlucks or fellowship lunch. We get together to have a walk or games in the park and all kinds of social events. And you know you can join a club or a society to do so. You don't need to come to church to do so. But when you come to church, and being a member of the church, you are to do what the Bible tells us to do. And that's what we are here to do. Week after week. We have the responsibility to preach the gospel to all the nations, beginning in and from, not Singapore, from your home, from your campus, from your workplace of work, from your community, and then from Singapore, and to the uttermost part of the earth. The second purpose is edification. You read here, and their knowledge of the truth. Now, coming to faith in Christ is not the end of the journey. In fact, it is the beginning of the journey. A journey of lifelong learning and education in the word of the Lord. After Paul led the people to Christ, he also taught them practically the truths of God's word. A Christian needs to be educated in the truth of God's word. They need to know the truth and taught the truth. The church should be a place where believers are taught the Bible. You are taught the word of God, you have learned the word of God, and if you come to PRPC one day, and you are not being fed or taught the word or growing in the word, something is very wrong. Of course, it can be both ways. Either the pupil is very wrong or you are in serious spiritual problem. You should be growing in grace and in the knowledge of our and our Savior Jesus Christ. And you individually should feed on God's word. 
to feed your faith on the Word of God by reading the Bible every day, by studying the Bible every day, and by also being a doer of the Bible every day. And do pray for the people that will continue to preach the Word of God, preach the Gospel weekly, that the church may be edified, may be built up with the most holy faith. The third purpose is sanctification. See, there's evangelism, there's edification, and now there's sanctification. And notice a phrase used in our text, which is after godliness, the knowledge of truth according to, or which is after godliness. In fact, the NIV, and I prefer that translation, at this instant, at least, which brings up the meaning of the text. It says, the truth that leads to godliness. You have the knowledge of the truth. You have your confessions and your catechisms. You have your reformed faith. But this reformed faith that our whole church holds dearly to should lead you to not a puff up mind, should lead you to godliness or according to godliness. They are in tandem. They are not, they don't stand alone. Something for us to reflect upon as we consider our church, a reformed church, a gospel tree in this part of the world. Does our knowledge lead us to godliness? Or is our Knowledge according to godliness. Something for us to pray and to reflect upon, really. And again, I have a quote from John Stott, the late British pastor and author and conference speaker. And I quote, he says, It is an essential feature of truth that a good test of its authenticity that since it comes from God, it leads to God. And listen to this very carefully. Anyway, he's, by the way, he's an Anglican man, not even a Reformed man as we would like him to be. He says, Any doctrine which does not promote godliness is manifestly bonkers. Any doctrine that does not produce and lead to and manifest godliness in the person believing it is a false doctrine. That is what John Stott taught us, taught me many years ago. And I can never forget it. If your life does not reflect the doctrine that has been taught, this is a false doctrine. Good doctrine should lead to godliness living in short. And that's what a servanthood is for. If you are getting taught something that leads you to a sinful lifestyle, that is not sound doctrine. That's not the word of God. Godliness is the goal of God's people, of every servant of the Lord. But we know by man, Man by himself is ungodly. You can be religious and not be godly. 
So we need to have the work of the Spirit through the Word of God to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ. That is the goal of godliness. To be Christ-like in our way of life, in our manner of life, even in our speech, in our dealing with one another. To be Christ-like. The fourth purpose is expectation. We read in verse 2, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now what does Paul mean by hope of eternal life? We know we have eternal life in Christ. When we come to Him in faith and in repentance. Paul is talking about the future hope of going to heaven. And when the Bible uses hope for the believer, and I can't wait to get to Titus chapter 2, verse 13, where he reads, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. When the scriptures speak of this hope, and this blessed hope, again, it's not something that we wish for. Like this morning, I wish it would never rain so heavily. When I walked in here, I was half dry. Even though I'm carrying an umbrella, of course I share with my beloved. That's why I'm half dry. And I wish it would not pour so heavily. Right? It deters everybody from going inside the car park as well. This is a wish. But when the scripture speaks of hope, speaks of the, the blessed hope, it speaks of a settled confidence and assurance in Christ. That's the main difference. It's a settled confidence and an assurance in Christ. It's not a wish list, nor your bucket list. is the true thing in Christ. And note in verse 2, also, that God promised before the ages begin. This hope and God has promised before the ages begin, you put them together. Isn't it such a blessed thing to know that God has promised beforehand, even before the ages begin, the hope, the eternal hope in Christ to all believers, to all who come to Him in faith and in repentance. This is the hope that God is speaking about. Are not the promises of God amazing? Yes. God's promises are exceeding great and precious. The God who makes this promise does not lie and cannot lie because God will never ever violate His own nature, which is truthfulness. Or infinitely, infinite truthfulness. Now, do you know that there are things that God cannot do? We always hear about God can do anything. All things are possible with God. God can do anything. Well, not completely true. God cannot lie. It's against His own nature to lie. And God cannot save sinners apart from faith in Christ. That is the only way to heaven. No other way. If you trust in your own religiosity, if you trust in your own goodness, I'm very sorry. That is not the acceptable way to God. 
You must and you can only come to God through Christ, who is the way, the truth and the life. And no one, no one can come to the Father but through Christ. And another blessed thought is to know that God cannot change and God is immutable. God's promise will not change. This promise that we shall make before the ages begin will not change over time. Our promises change, right? Over time. Maybe a nanosecond, but not with God. And what a marvelous truth it is to know that God's promise never changes. And nothing is so true as the Word of God, and it provides for us the hope. The hope in Christ. Hope of eternal life in Christ. The fifth and last purpose in our text, at least, is proclamation. In verse 3, we read on, and, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. Here we are, and here we see, preaching. That is, that is the heron thing, or the proclamation of God's word had been entrusted to Paul, the born slave of Christ. Again, there is no substitute for preaching and the teaching of the will of God. Many churches, good Christian churches, have left preaching to the bare 15 minutes. It's more like a talk show rather than a preaching, actually. It's more like a pick-up talk rather than preaching. And in my overseas travel, I've been to some of these churches. It's sad, in a sense, because I really want to hear the will of God, but I'm only given 15 minutes of perk talk. And 45 minutes of worship, and I have no chance to sing in the worship at all because it's led by someone on the stage. And I wasn't given the cue to sing, so I kept my mouth shut. And I couldn't enjoy the full worship as it is. And that is how it is today in many good Christian churches. You see, the Bible should be open, should be read, and also to be explained and proclaimed and applied to the lives of the believers. This is what Paul is talking about in Servanthood of Christ. You see, I was reading the commentary, I'm still reading the commentary by this, by the Bible preacher and pastor, Charles Swindoll. Some of you may not know this person. He, he's as old as my mom. He had been preaching for the last 60 years. He's still preaching his church in Texas. And, he's, and of course, you may not, I do not agree with everything that he preached, that he taught. That, but he's truly a servant of the Lord. Remarkable servant of the Lord. And he highlighted in verse 3, and I quote, what he says. Paul is explaining that his ministry is to be expositional, 
It is an expositional ministry. When Paul uses that phrase in verse 3, manifested in his word, you notice that, I hope. It means that he unveiled it or that he has made it clear. His preaching is clear. He unveiled the word of God. He declared the word of God to the people. While this is true in preaching of the word, Think for a moment, it is also true for the Christian-born slave to unveil and to make the gospel clear to the world in his day-to-day life. The Bible says again in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stones, but on tablets of human hearts. All of us are living epistles of Christ to the world. And the world reads us before they read any New Testaments or Bible portions or any tracts. The world hear us before they hear the preaching of the gospel. The world is watching us. How we live our life of faith. How we love one another as Christ loves us. How we bear up in Christ when the going gets tough. How we walk the top of our faith. And how we seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness above all else. Many years ago, my best friend, dad passed on. And he had a funeral. The wake was held in his house, big house, big courtyard. And, and the relatives thought that that is big enough for all their relatives and their friends to come. But lo and behold, I was amazed too. This best friend of mine had friends from three, three, three churches. And the members from three churches came and visited the wake. The relative jaw dropped. Because their big courtyard, their driveway, even the outside road cannot hold all the crowds that come. And we barely know the, the father, but we know this person, this best friend of mine, Christian boy, Christian, not boy. Christian man now, old man. And the relative says something which I overheard. Wow, the, the Christian people really love one another. They don't know the father, but they know the son. They all come and I mean, support the, this, their brother in, such, in time like this. This is Christian love. See, the world see our love for one another before they even hear of God's love before they even experience the love of God, when they come to Christ in faith and repentance. Is this how, how, we, how we preach to the world? And you can sound very authentic, very real, very true from the pulpit, but does our life also reflect that to the world? Are we expositional? 
to the world. Okay, I want to remind us again. I will highlight this very important element in our servanthood. The place of God in Paul's life as well as in the life of the Christian born slave. First of all, we use the word of God for evangelism, don't we? The word of God should be used in evangelism to, that we can share and preach the gospel to the lost world. Secondly, it was used in edification. We should be teaching and preaching the word of God and instructing people in God's word to build them up in the most holy faith through the word. Thirdly, it was used in sanctification of the saints. We are sanctified through God's truth. And God's word is truth. Fourthly, it was used in the expectation. God's word promises that Christ is coming again and he will take us home one day. And fifthly, we have to proclaim the word of God in word and in life, in our own lives especially. Paul was a servant of God's word in all aspects. And this also marked up the faithful servant of Christ. But beyond, we have looked at the purpose, we've looked at the definition as well as the purpose of servanthood. Now we come to what I call the passing on, the pattern of servanthood. We read that in verse 4. In verse 4, Paul comes to the end of his salutation and he tells us who he was writing to. Paul says, To Titus, my true son in the in a common faith. Well, which indicates that Titus was perhaps led to Christ by Paul. Now the word my true son indicates really my, dear, my own dear son, my own biological son. And it is in a spiritual sense, Titus was his son in the faith. As I mentioned, Paul perhaps have led Titus to the faith and surely he was his mentor. He had disciple and trained him for the gospel ministry. And Paul invested himself in the lives of others. You see here, Paul invested his life in the life of others that there might be a continuation of the gospel ministry. The continuation of the gospel ministry after he passed on from the present life. He will mentor Christian folks, simple folks. As we read from the epistles, and also the Acts of the Apostles. And he will challenge them to follow him as he follows Christ, to imitate his life as he imitates Christ.
a Christian servant cannot serve the Lord alone. He needs to find somebody to mentor, to instruct, to pull along, to show the ropes of the ministry, to lead by example, to put his hand or his arm around, to help to and to strengthen them and to pass on the baton of servanthood to the succeeding generations. Not only true for the pulpit ministry or the pastoral ministry, it's also true in all the departments of the church, from the Sunday school to the tea fellowship and to the person who set up the PA, to the person who do the bulletin before we even arrive in church. All aspects of the church departments need succession and continuation. Individuals need to be mentored, need to learn from the examples of the godly leaders. But individuals need to use their gifts and their talents too to fulfill the work of the ministry of the church. And a servant of the Lord are to be faithful, to be faithful stewards of the manifold blessings of God. Again, the question comes down. Are you using your gifts and your talents for kingdom building or for your own agenda? Now, how does Paul close his salutation or the opening section of the letter? He closes with grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. Again, this is, sometimes we just gloss over these greetings, right? But these greetings are, first of all, inspired by the Lord and they, carry, they, are, they are pregnant with meaning, with great meaning. It's not just your ordinary with regards or dear something in our normal letter writing. It conveys truths. The source of our grace and peace, first of all, comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Remember, we were at war with the Lord. We are God's enemies. There's no peace between Christ come to be our peacemaker. Christ came and became our peace, the scripture says. He is our peace. He down the cross in our place. He satisfied God's justice and rough become our peace. We won't enjoy peace on this side of eternity without Christ. And we have this peace that passes through all understanding. Even the world cannot conceive, the world know it not. This peace, wholesomeness in the Hebrew or peace in the Greek, something so precious and something so hard one by Christ.
for us on the cross. Yes, we are saved by grace. We are sustained by God's grace. And we are served by God's grace. We are strengthening our life by the grace of God. Which is God, um, which is something unmerited from the Lord. Something which we do not merit from the Lord. Something that every servant of the Lord needs. The grace and the peace from God. You see why? Because it means a lot. Not only to Titus, but I think to all of us. Especially to Titus who are serving alone, in a sense, on the island of Creek. What it means to Titus, I can only guesstimate, but for our learning today, it will mean not only for him but for us, it means we have freedom from anxiety and we have peace in spite of adverse, difficult circumstances. As a pastor, as a lonely pastor in Creek, he surely needs a lot of grace and peace from the Lord. He doesn't have a fraternal, nor handphone, nor what apps or Zoom to link up with anybody online. And it probably takes a long time for this letter to reach him. And sometimes even as Christians, when we are fearful, we need and we can rest in God's grace and peace. Remember that those things come as their source from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. So get on your knees. Get in God's word. Pray and seek the Lord. And pray to the Lord that the peace, that possible understanding will keep our heart and mind in Christ. Paul saw himself as a bond slave. Do you? Paul was an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Are you? Paul sought to evangelize others. Do you? Paul uses God's word to win others to Christ and to disciple them. Do you do that? Paul shared the hope that Christ is coming again. Do you live in that expectation and that hope daily? We can only experience the grace of God, the peace of God, because Christ has died for us on the cross. And let us, let this be our prayer to the Lord daily as I close. Lord, I want to be your servant. I want to be your ambassador. I want to be your messenger. Use me for your glory. Amen. Let us pray.